president-elect has been very clear. We have one president at a time. So we do have to wait until January 20th and inauguration to move forward on our own um, enacting our own policies. In the meantime, we are, of course, making the plans and reaching out to all the stakeholders. Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Joanne Slaburner, an editor at the BMJ, and I handle feature stories about COVID-19's march through the U.S. and what a march it has been. A new virus with nightmarish characteristics, symptomless spreading, a predilection for more serious effects in older people, a disproportionate effect on communities of color, and no cure yet. And the situation in the U.S. is further complicated by a president whose response to the pandemic has been, let's say, uninformed by science or public health considerations. A new president will be sworn in on January 20th, and he has already started making plans for what to do about COVID-19. And he's assembled an advisory board to guide him. Today, I'm talking to one of the members of Joe Biden's COVID-19 advisory board, Celine Gounder. Dr. Gounder is an infectious diseases expert who has worked on Ebola, TB, and HIV in Africa and South America. She's now a clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine. She's also active on the journalism front as a guest on many news shows and with publications in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and many other places. And she's hosting two podcast series of her own. She's pretty busy, so I'm thrilled she's here today. Thanks, Dr. Gepter. It's great to be here. Now, you were recently named to President-elect Joe Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board. I'd like to ask you what that means, but first I'd like to ask you, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, quite literally, uh, I got a text message from somebody on the Biden-Harris team that this might happen. Um, and I was on the wards at Bellevue Hospital um, for a two-week block at the time. Um, and then a couple days later, got a call that I was in fact being named, um, to the advisory board and, um, yeah, I mean, it's really quite an honor and a privilege. I was very excited to get the news. Why do you think they picked you? Um, so I am an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. I have worked in both global and domestic public health. Uh, for many years on diseases that have much in common with coronavirus. Um, you know, you think about tuberculosis, for example, it's another airborne infection where you um, do contact tracing and screening and testing for people um, in very similar ways. Uh, whether it's Ebola or HIV or tuberculosis, these are all diseases that tend to affect people who are poor, more marginalized, have worse access to care. Um, and so there are a lot, both medical as well as public health similarities amongst these. And then, you know, I have also had experience um, managing public health programs on the communications journalism front. So I think it's the mix of those different skills that are useful in this setting. Well, I think the advisory board has a huge job ahead of you. The international commu community, I think, looks at the U.S. response to COVID-19, as do many people in the U.S., 
as so far being awful in a word. Why has it been so awful? I think, unfortunately, um, the response has been politicized. And we've seen this in other contexts as well. Like I, I think back to Ebola in West Africa um, as a really perfect example of this. Um, so I was an aid worker for two months in Guinea. Um, and both Guinea as well as some of the other countries in the region were facing their own presidential elections in the midst of an epidemic. And the political messages and the public health messages really got conflated. You had people of the Ghanaian president's party wearing the yellow t-shirts of the president with his face on them going door to door and educating about Ebola. And you can imagine that if somebody came to your house with a MAGA hat or a Biden-Harris t-shirt and told you about whether or not you should wear a mask and, you know, maybe you should get vaccinated or not, that that wouldn't really go over very well and would create a lot of resistance um, along political lines. And that unfortunately is parallel with what we've seen happen here. And I think on top of that, you have a lot of people who are disillusioned, distrustful of government in general. And whenever you have distrust, that also leads to conspiracy theories. So, you know, I think it's the combination of politicization and lack of trust and conspiracy theories that have made this an especially challenging uh, pandemic to fight in this country. One could also argue that it is a president who's not listening to scientists. I would say that's part of the politicization, um, that it was not in his political interests, at least in his mind, to listen to scientists or to follow the science. Um, and unfortunately, that has led to a really poor response here in the United States, a very patchy response with some states following the science more than others. Um, and that's really been terrible for, for people on the ground, you know, the people who are getting sick, the people well, like me who are caring for patients in the hospital. Um, we've been really left hanging without the support we needed from, a, from clear leadership and, and um, financial supports from the federal government during this time. What can the advisory board do? Well, the advisory board's job is to advise the president-elect and the vice president-elect and the transition team. Um, our job is not to intervene with what the current administration is doing. Um, and the president-elect has been very clear. We have one president at a time. So we do have to wait until January 20th an inauguration to move forward on our own, um, enacting our own policies. In the meantime, we are, of course, making the plans and reaching out to all the stakeholders um, to gather information, to assess where things are at, to figure out how we're going to move forward on that. But our biggest tool in this moment, other than making plans, is really communication and leading by example, um, whether that is president-elect uh, and vice president-elect or members of the advisory board wearing masks ourselves and social distancing and doing all of those things ourselves, lining up to get vaccinated when the time comes and if we're, we're eligible. 
and then finally, um, I think communicating with the public is also a really important thing here that we uh, be communicating the science and public health recommendations, because um, I think that can have a big impact even before um, the president and uh, president elect and vice president elect are in office. And after January 20th, what can you do? Well, the the early measures you'll see taken will be likely the president's elect invoking the Defense Production Act to really ramp up production of personal protective equipment. That is something that continues to be an issue. Um, when I go to the hospital, we have this like almost like a bank teller window that you go up to and you show your ID and you get dispensed your three and 95 masks for the week. You know, that is still the norm. And so we have been in this shortage rationing mode for months now, and that is not going to change without that kind of leadership and, and invoking of the Defense Production Act. So that, that is going to be one of the initial executive orders. Um, and then in addition to that, you're going to see very strong messaging around masks. The president-elect has said that he's going to ask Americans to really commit to wearing masks for the first 100 days he's in office. Masks are cheap, they're effective, they do not close the economy. And until we are able to get everyone vaccinated, um, which is going to take months, um, realistically speaking, until then, our best tool is a mask. And unfortunately, masks have been politicized, but you know they really are no different from something like toilet paper. They are basic hygienic measures that work really well. Will the advisory board be suggesting that they be required? So the federal government does not have jurisdiction to mandate masks in most settings. The only places in which you could mandate wearing a mask would be in federal buildings, federal lands, uh, perhaps on an airplane where you're talking about interstate travel. Um, so, you know, mask mandates, if you're going to have any, would really be um, the decision of mayors and, and governors and that sort of thing. But I think what we're talking about is really very, very strong messaging encouragement um, of mask wearing. And I think a lot of that is, you know, how, even if you had a mandate, how would you even enforce that? So I think the question is, how do you encourage people to do it? How do you make it that they want to do that? Um, and I think one thing that has been encouraging the CDC and one of their recent MMWRs recently published data on trends in mask wearing. And the fact is, Americans are getting better at this. Um, they are wearing them um, more frequently, more consistently than they had been early on. Uh, it's about 90% of Americans now that wear masks some of the time at least. Uh, and so they may not be perfect about how they wear them, but that's a huge improvement over um, what we were seeing early on. And so I think the more we make it a social norm um, and sort of leverage that peer pressure as opposed to government pressure. I think that is what is going to be more effective here. Um, so number one priority for the board. Do you bring anything special as well? Do I recall this correctly that you've got a special interest in issues of racial disparities? I do. Um, and, you know, this relates to my work in tuberculosis and HIV Um these are diseases of people who tend to be poor, marginalized. Um, and so my patients over time have been largely people of color or um, people of LGBT 
uh, orientation or um, also a um, large proportion of my patients have struggled with substance use disorders um, or mental health disorders. And so that is something that I really very am very passionate about and focus on. And I think um, those are all groups that have that struggle with trust uh, with the system, whether it's the government or the healthcare system, and where there are very much going to be issues of trust um, as we move forward with vaccination. And so how do you reach out to those communities, understand their concerns, hear those concerns, um, and work with them to, to bridge that gap is going to be really important. So programmatically, how do you think you can address that through the board? What, what kind of advice will you be giving? Well, if you look at what we did in West Africa during Ebola, um, we partnered with a host of social scientists, so anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, and really went out into the field and met with people on the ground. Um, and one of the first things I did when I got there was I met with a couple of these anthropologists and sociologists to understand what they had already learned. I then went and spent time with local imams, local journalists, local doctors and nurses, um, teachers groups, um, you know, and so on to understand where what they were seeing, what they were hearing, what their perspective was. Because that's really what you need to understand, first of all, is where are they coming from? What is even being said in these communities? What are the rumors, the conspiracy theories, the concerns? Um, and then, you know, find through those conversations, you also do start to identify who are the community leaders, who are the people are, that are trusted as you have those conversations. People also start to trust you if you show that you care, if you show that you're listening. And it's that process that then also starts to create a bridge where you have people who are leaders who start to trust you, who are willing to work with you. And they are the ones that then talk to others in their community. And, you know, in the case of Ebola, it was around um, hygienic measures and safe burials. You know, in this context, it's going to be about masks and getting tested and and getting vaccinated. Um, but it's really less about me being the one to go directly to the community and saying, oh, you should do this. It's more about um, being a bridge um, and and having those conversations with people who can then be the ones to do that work. So through the, through the board, will you be having meetings with some group leaders or, or will you be pushing for I'm just going to make this up here, uh, uh, money to go to that kind of anthropologic and sociological involvement? I mean, I'll certainly be um, encouraging that kind of approach. Um, and trust and communication are, are definitely going to be priorities um, for the board moving forward. Right. Now, one of the issues uh, currently has been getting information from the current administration so that you could move forward and, and make plans starting January 20th. Uh, there was an issue of a government agency failing to recognize Joe Biden as president-elect, which delayed things. It's been settled now. Are you now getting the information you need to be able to provide good advice? Yeah, so since the General Services Administration, the GSA, um, since they ascertained the res results of the election, 
Um, the Biden-Harris transition team has begun its process of having meetings with members of the current administration. Um, and so far, those efforts seem to be sincere, um, which is really important. And I think, you know, it's good to remember that many people who work in government are not political appointees. There are lifelong public servants. And so they are really invested in seeing this transmit transition go as smoothly as possible. They, they, you know, want to see government work. They've invested their, their lives in working in government. And so, you know, I think, um, from what I've been observing, the, the conversations and communications have been, um, have been positive ones. Good. Uh, now, with vaccines soon to be approved in the U.S. or maybe approved by the time this comes out, what is the major challenge for the board? It sounds like number one, uh, right off the starting block, is going to be masks. What about vaccines? So vaccines, you know, based on the um, ACIP, which came out with recommendations on who will be first in line for a vaccine earlier this week, or at least earlier the week we recorded this, um, the first in line to be vaccinated will include healthcare workers and residents and staff of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Um, but it's going to be a while before the vaccine is available, um, to the broader general public. We're thinking probably April or May before we start to, um, see the average person, um, who may not be elderly or have underlying risk factors, conditions, before that average person gets access. Um, so some of what we're going to be thinking about between now and then is how do you further prioritize, um, because there are still a lot of people who, um, for various different reasons, are either at higher risk for being exposed or higher risk for severe disease if exposed. And so that gets a bit complicated um, to figure out sort of that priority list. But then also, how do you make sure that we're manufacturing enough? How do you distribute, especially given some of these vaccines, such as the Pfizer vaccine requires deep freezing? How do you make sure you have the facilities for all of that, that you're not wasting any doses of vaccine um, because you don't have the appropriate storage? That would that would be um, a problem as well, obviously. Um, and then there's all the work of bringing people in to get vaccinated. Um, so some people will be very excited to be first in line. And then you have some people who are very hesitant. And, um, you know, how do you communicate around those issues? Um, how do you make it easy for somebody to come in? So if you're in a rural area and the nearest hospital is two hours away, how are we going to, to facilitate vaccination in those settings? So there, there are a whole lot of um, operational logistic kinds of questions as well as communications questions to tackle. Sounds like that's going to be a busy part of your life. What uh, now I'm asking from the view of maybe there's a doctor out there who's listening who is thinking they want to get involved in policymaking or in uh, decision making or at least giving advice to the decision makers. What have you done so far and, and has it interrupted the rest of your life? Has it interrupted my life? In terms of, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so, you know, you're a doctor, you've got a job, you've, you've got podcasts, you're doing a lot of things. It, has the board interrupted any of that? 
Uh, and is that answer, a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, even before I was essentially juggling, you know, two or three jobs and now have another one on top of that. Um, I mean, to give you some perspective, I have not taken a day off uh, with the exception of Thanksgiving since February. That is the only day off I've taken since then. So, um, you know, it's one of these moments where I feel like I personally, and I think a lot of other people feel this way, that we have the unique training. We're in the, a place where we're needed in this moment. And so we are going to step up and do what needs to be done. And it's not just a burden, it's also a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to to serve in that way in this moment. So, um, you know, I, I just feel lucky that I can. So what have you done so far in terms of the board? It's a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions um, internally, as well as with other stakeholders. Um, so, and, and there's just a lot of research and reading you do on your own time, some of which I would be doing anyway. Um, you know, part of what's been so, so much work over the last several months is keeping up with all of the science publications, all of the news, um, you know, and now it's also all, keeping up with all of the internal discussions. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of that, you know? Yeah. Well, any advice for U.S. doctors or doctors anywhere who want to have their voices heard at this kind of level? Well, I, you know, I think first of all, um, there are ways to reach out to the team through the um, Building Back Better Biden-Harris website. Like if you have concrete, um, whether it's concrete support, papers you want to share with us, publications you want to be sharing, um, policy recommendations, um, those can be submitted through the website. Um, but, you know, in a more concrete way, I think it's a question of getting involved with the political process locally first. Um, you know, so reaching out to your locally represented officials and, and in particular with COVID um, and public health issues more generally, a lot of that happens at the state and local level. Um, the CDC makes guidelines and recommendations, but they are not the ones implementing. They provide technical assistance to the state and local level. They funnel money to the state and local level. And so there's a lot that needs to happen at the state and local level. And so I think that's probably at this stage where people are needed the most. Um, and and, where it's in, what, in what context? So let's say you're a doc in Nebraska and you're seeing everything, uh, you know, your hospitals are crowded, uh, the numbers are going up, you want to do something on a policy level, what do you do? Well, it depends on what's needed in your particular context and what your skill sets are. Um, you know, it could be something like writing an op-ed. It could be something like writing to your mayor um, to going. I mean, we don't really have town hall meetings the way that we used to, but um, a lot of places are having those kinds of conversations virtually. Um, you know, those are some great starting points. You know, I think the challenge is, especially people in healthcare, they are struggling with their own, um, whether it's their practices, um, you know, with the numbers of patients they maybe are seeing in the hospital. So they're already a lot of people pretty overwhelmed. And so it does demand a certain level of bandwidth to, to do this kind of work. Um, 
and sort of be realistic about that. But I, I do think that just bearing witness, um, and again, that could be in written form, maybe you're reaching out to your local radio station, um, your local TV station, that can have tremendous impact. And I think people really like to hear from others from their own community that has, that really does go a long ways. And um, while that may not be national television, the impact that you have in that same five minute clip, if you're somebody who people know in the community, who's respected, who maybe is a family doctor for a lot of the people in that town, that will resonate in a completely different way. And I think those kinds of things are very worthwhile. Uh, one last question, and that is, uh, as a writer and a journalist yourself, what are your views on communications to the public about COVID, and will the board be dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely um, something that we are thinking about, talking about, doing. I'm not the only one who who's um, doing media interviews, for example. Many of us are in this moment. Um I think it's really important to, as we move forward, to be grounded in science. Um, and unfortunately, over the last several years, and this is not just limited to the um, last four years, this is something that's actually a longer term trend, um, that science has been under attack. Um, and also public health has been um, more recently under attack. And so in our communications to really try to restore trust in those. Um, and I think part of that is also communicating with empathy. Um, and I think, you know, the last thing we want is for us to go up there and just spout off science and to seem very robotic and out of touch with people's everyday concerns. That's not helpful either. And so I think really trying to be grounded in the science while also being human is really important here. What can the advisory board do and what can you do as an advisory board member to get the public more excited about doing the things that they need to do? I think we really, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, our approach in West Africa. I think people listen to people who look like themselves, um, who are from their own communities. Um, and so I think it's really important to be recruiting those kinds of voices, to be telling their stories, to be sharing their stories, and for those voices to be um, really the leading voices on these issues. Um, and so that does take time and effort to develop that. Um, I mean, what you're talking about is developing almost like a, a legion of people who are embedded in communities to be doing this. And, and so it's, and it's not all just about putting them on television to speak. A lot of it is word of mouth, um, you know, social media, those kinds of things that are more organic. Um, I, th I think it requires a certain openness and curiosity about other people um, to be able to do that. And how can the board promote that? Well, I mean, the, the board, again, our role is to advise the president's elect and the vice president elect and the transition team. So we can promote that by advising them on how to do that. 
Um, and if we are called upon to do so to be part of, you know, doing that. Um, so, you know, it really depends on how they choose to plug us in operationally into some of these activities. Thank you very much, Dr. Gander. I know that you're busy and this has been a very interesting conversation. You've been listening to Celine Gounder, a member of President-elect Joe Biden's COVID task force. That's it for this podcast. I'm Joanne Solberner. We'll be back with more of these big interviews soon. If you want to hear from the people who will be shaping medicine in the coming years, subscribe to BMJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.